Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 133 for the first half of June 2015. The topic I'm going to talk about today is whether element 115 on Unpentium supports the claims of the alleged whistleblower Bob Lazar. I'm going to return to my roots somewhat with this episode and try to focus on a very specific claim made by a single individual, but then how that single claim is used by many other people to state that the entire body of claims made by that individual are all correct. I speak in this case of the alleged whistleblower Bob Lazar, who came upon the UFO scene in about 1989. He made a lot of claims about UFOs and advanced technology, but the one in particular for this episode is about an element that had not yet been discovered, element 115 on Pentium. This was the element that was claimed to make the UFOs work. Many in the UFO community doubted and doubt Bob Lazar's testimony, but when Pentium was first synthesized in the open literature in 2003, his credibility took a sudden rise. His advocates said that the fact that element 115 exists when Bob said it did before it had been openly synthesized means that the rest of his story is true. As a gratuitous side note, regular listeners of the podcast and readers of my blog, especially from about 2009 and 2010, may recognize this kind of retrodictive credibility claim. But that's what I'm talking about in this episode. Does the existence of element 115 mean that Bob Lazar's testimony, in any part, should be considered more trustworthy? And did his testimony accurately state the properties of this element? As this episode is intended to be a short discussion of chemistry and nuclear physics, and believability, I don't want to spend too much time on background, but in this case, Bob Lazar's background is almost central to the story. To tell this background, I went to a page linked in the show notes called The Lazar Synopsis, written by Gene Huff, and sent in by listener Graham. Unfortunately, the synopsis is 13 printed pages. So much for brief. The story as told in the synopsis, briefly, is that Bob Lazar was a photographer in the Las Vegas area in the 1980s, but he had some sort of background in physics or engineering or something related, after all he built a jet-powered car, Uh, but he had previously worked at Los Alamos National Labs in New Mexico. He wanted to get back into science, so he sent out resumes, and he was apparently hired at an Area 51 auxiliary site known as S-4. And to interject my own commentary, I could actually believe this story up to this point if I really had to. The story then goes on that Bob Lazar, quote, was placed in a briefing room by himself to read some briefings as part of his indoctrination. As Mariani closed the door to leave Bob alone, Bob saw a poster on the back of the door. It was a flying saucer hovering over a dry lake bed, and it was captioned, They're here. Bob opened the top folder on the desk, and it contained 8x10 glossy photos of nine different flying saucers, including the one on the poster. Bob's alleged job was to back-engineer alien spacecraft and see if they could be reproduced with terrestrial materials. He was forced to sign away his constitutional rights, which was apparently allowed by an executive order from President Ronald Reagan. He also agreed to have his phones tapped, and they tried to give him a handgun, but they said that they would charge him $500 if he lost it, but he refused to do so because he knew that it wasn't worth that much. Apparently this is an important part of the story. 
And he was also subjected to medical tests, but they wouldn't tell him what those tests were looking for. Here at S4, he also saw what he thought was a small gray alien, he also had above top secret clearance, and was subjected to various forms of memory manipulation, all along with other things that you might expect to see in Doctor Who's Black Archive or at Stargate Command. Unable to keep his mouth shut, he told his friends and brought them to an area, told them to look up, and there were UFOs doing impossible maneuvers over their heads. It was at this time that a local newscaster, George Knapp, was featuring UFOlogists on his news program. Bob claimed that he was fired after being shown a transcript of a phone conversation that was evidence that his wife was having an affair. They fired him because they considered Bob to be an emotionally insecure risk, and so they revoked his clearance. To retaliate, he cooperated with George Knapp, and he produced a special called UFOs, The Best Evidence, which included material by Bob Lazar, and it aired in November of 1989. George Knapp tried to verify Bob's credentials, which obviously would be kind of a good thing to know that you're not talking with some random crazy person who just made all this up, but he was unable to verify anything other than a record that Bob went to Pierce Junior College in California. Incidentally, it should be noted that George Knapp is an occasional host of Coast to Coast AM. Lazar had claimed to work at Los Alamos, gone to MIT, and various other things having to do with his academic and scientific background. For the record, Stanton Friedman, who is often seen as the father of modern ufology, also tried to verify Bob Lazar's background. I quote from Friedman's website on Bob Lazar. Bob could not have gotten a compartmentalized security clearance, having operated a brothel. His W-2 form from the Department of Naval Intelligence totals under $1,000, at most a week's pay for a scientist. You can't get a security clearance in a week. Not one shred of evidence has been put forth to support this story. No diplomas, no resumes, no transcripts, no memberships in professional organizations, no papers, no pages from MIT or Caltech yearbooks. He also mentioned in a phone conversation with me, California State University at Northridge and Pierce Junior College, also in the San Fernando Valley, California. I checked all four schools. Pierce said he had taken electronics courses in the late 1970s. The other three schools never heard of him. The page from Los Alamos National Lab phone book with Lazar's name on it clearly states that it included employees of the DOE, Department of Energy, and outside contractor Kirk Meyer. K.M. follows Lazar's name. This proves he worked for K.M., not Lanel, Los Alamos National Lab. I checked with Lanel's personnel department for Lazar's name and that of an old colleague. They found my guy, but not Lazar. He was publicly asked when he got his MS from MIT. He said, Let me see now. I think it was probably 1982. Nobody getting an MS from MIT would not know the year immediately. He was asked to name some of his profs. He said, Let's see now. Bill Duxler will remember me from the physics department at Caltech. I located Dr. Duxler. He's a Pierce Junior College physics prof and never taught at Caltech. Lazar was registered in one of his courses at the same time Lazar was supposedly at MIT. Nobody who can go to MIT goes to Pierce JC, not to mention the rather long commute between LA, California, and Cambridge, Massachusetts. I checked his high school in New York State. He graduated in August, not with his class. The only science course he took was chemistry. He ranked 261 out of 369, which is in the bottom third. 
There is no way he would have been admitted to MIT or Caltech. An MS in physics from MIT requires a thesis. No such thesis exists at MIT, and he is not on a commencement list. The notion that the government wiped his civilian records clean is absurd. I checked with the legal counsel at MIT. No way to wipe all his records clean. The physics department never heard of him, and he is not a member of the American Physical Society. So that's what you get if you read Stanton Friedman's website. Obviously, not really a big fan of Bob Lazar. Incidentally, as I was reading that, I was thinking back. I can probably name most of my physics and most of my astronomy professors from college 15 years ago uh, by name, by year, and what class they taught. For example, there was Professor Chris Mijos. I took Introductory Astronomy from him, Class 221, in the fall of 2001. And I then, actually, that year he split it with uh, uh, Professor Earl Luck, who was the department chair. Luck taught the stars part. Mijos taught the planets part at the beginning of that semester. There. That was off the top of my head. Not hard to do, and I'm not going to start mixing up schools. Okay, so that off to the side, um, and I'll link to Friedman's efforts in the show notes. There you go, for credibility in terms of the background information. What's important to point out is that somehow, in spite of all of this, George Knapp continued, and actually continues, current tense, to promote Bob Lazar. When sweeps rolled around in 1989 and 1990, George Knapp had him on as an update, and his television station, KLAS, incidentally, class, uh, set a ratings record. Many in the UFO community credit Knapp and Lazar for relaunching the field of ufology. As a perhaps other interesting side note, Bob Lazar and John Lear became friends after they met in 1988. I've talked about John Lear's various, um, how shall I put it, interesting ideas in various previous episodes, including episode 19. Most of those ideas of John Lear, at least with respect to how alien craft work, and some of the alleged intelligence from other planets, comes from Bob Lazar. Probably because of this background, that he probably played such a critical role in the re-energizing of the UFO community over 25 years ago, people are willing to overlook the fact that no one can corroborate his claimed background with any written documentation other than a junior college, which he was apparently attending at the same time he claims to have attended MIT. I've heard all sorts of explanations, mostly centering around the men in black destroying all his records so that his background couldn't be corroborated, hence what Stan Friedman was referring to when he said the notion that the government wiped his civilian records clean is absurd. I tend to agree with that sentiment. It's also probably because of this that people look into his claims themselves to corroborate his story, and despite every single one of his science claims seeming to be baloney, there's one that people latch onto now because it is real science, element 115, or ununpentium. Bob Lazar claimed that element 115, or ununpentium, which is a placeholder name, meaning un for one, un meaning one, pentium meaning five, so 115, was the element and was the key to the fuel system of the alien spacecraft. Ununpentium allowed the craft to warp space and create its own gravitational field to pull the craft through space. John Lear reiterates this with the so-called gravity A and B waves, which sound fascinating but don't actually mean anything. Bob Lazar claimed that the way that they worked was that 
unimpendium generates a minuscule gravity field, which can be tapped into and amplified because that gravity field exists just beyond the atom's outermost electron shell. Lazar never said exactly how it's done, but the end result is a highly directional gravity distortion field, and if you bombard it with protons, unimpendium produces antimatter, which then generates all of the power that's needed for the systems on the spacecraft. So you also only need about two kilos or about four and a half pounds of the stuff to last for several years of power and propulsion. Of unimpendium's manufacture, Bob Lazar stated it is, quote, impossible to synthesize an element that heavy here on Earth. The substance has to come from a place where super heavy elements could have been produced naturally. End quote. But he also said that the U.S. government had collected about 500 pounds of the material, which I guess would be enough to power 100 crafts for several years. In addition to that, Mr. Lazar claimed that unimpentium melts at a temperature of 1,740 degrees centigrade, which is about 3,160 degrees Fahrenheit or 2,000 kelvins. These are not a lot of claims to go on, but we can look at them in a methodical way to see if anything checks out. First, when Bob Lazar was making his claims, the periodic table of elements went up to element 109, although it should be noted that 109 was discovered two years before element 108, Hassium. The reason is that it's generally easier to synthesize odd-numbered elements than even-numbered elements. But with that in mind, it absolutely must be stated that chemists, physicists, and other scientists did not think the periodic table stopped with 109. In fact, at least as far back as the 1960s, Glenn Seaborg, who actually has an element named after him, proposed the possibility that there would be an island of stability of super-heavy elements with a proton number of around 120 to 126. This island of stability would have elements that would be stable for long periods of time, like seconds or days. What you have to realize is that the reason the periodic table didn't go up to elements with a proton number of 100 until we had nuclear bombs and later particle accelerators is that it takes a tremendous amount of energy to create these heavy elements, and they last for hours. Elements with a proton number above 110 tend to last for seconds. Those like 115 tend to last for tens to hundreds of milliseconds. They are incredibly unstable. Kind of like if you were to try to cram a stack of magnets together, where the magnets are alternately facing different directions so that the same poles are facing each other. You're trying to force these into a tighter and tighter clump. There comes a point where they just are going to fly apart unless you're holding them together. You can try to mitigate that or moderate it by sticking buffers in, or in atomic physics, that would be the configuration of the neutrons. But it can only reach some level of quasi-stability before it flies apart again. For example, unimpentium-290, which has 175 neutrons to the 115 protons, has a half-life of only 16 milliseconds. But if you change the neutron configuration slightly by taking one out, so you have unimpentium-289, the half-life goes up by more than a factor of 10, it's 220 milliseconds. That's still less than a quarter of a second. But back to my point. Scientists were openly predicting that these elements existed at least in the 1960s, over two decades before Bob Lazar made his claims about element 115. So, the very fact that he incorporated unimpentium into his story, and then unimpentium was synthesized, does not mean that his story is automatically true. 
We tend to see this a lot in other types of UFO claims by various people. That may seem like an obvious statement to many of you, but you're an elite audience. Many people miss or choose not to understand this, evidenced by the fact that when Unpendium was first possibly observed in a particle accelerator in 2003, various chat rooms and forums on the internet lit up with statements like Bob Lazar vindicated. Unfortunately, the very method of his apparent vindication that Element 115 had finally been created directly contradicts a key claim that Bob Lazar made. An unpentium cannot be synthesized in a lab, that it must be found in naturally occurring deposits that can only be made in high-mass star systems. This itself kind of makes no sense. Stars during their normal life produce nothing heavier than iron, because everything heavier than iron takes more energy than it gives up in the fusion process. It's only in supernova explosions, or particle accelerators, that you get heavier elements, including the ones with very, very short half-lives, like probably Onanpentium, which means that if there is a stable isotope that lasts millions or billions of years, it should be everywhere, because the entirety of our galaxy has been seeded by supernova explosions by this point in time. Which, as another side note, is an issue that I had with the Stargate franchise, because Naquita is supposed to be naturally occurring, super dense, and happens to occur in most places in galaxies other than Earth. It's a McGovern, but it's one that doesn't make sense given how basic astronomy works. Come to think of it, Naquita in Stargate kind of fulfills much of what Element 115 does for Bob Lazar. That musing aside, another point that Bob Lazar made about Unanpentium is that its melting point is 2,000 kelvins. It's not. It's about 670 kelvins. But beyond that, with so far every point I've addressed contradicting his story other than the element's mere existence, we do have the stability problem. Unanpentium is near one predicted island of stability between Copernicium, or Copernicusium, and Fluorovium, elements 112 and 114. But the known isotopes are not stable. The predicted maximum stability of the most stable version of element 115, which would be Unanpentium 291, is only seconds. To be able to store Unanpentium 291 for years on a spacecraft would not be possible, for it would still, in a conventional sense, be highly radioactive and quickly decay into Copernicium 291, which itself would be stable for around 1200 years. From that discussion about stability, I think that the take-home message is that, at the most generous we could possibly be, we can say that we have not yet discovered all isotopes of element 115, but that the predicted, absolutely most stable version would be impossible to use as Lazar wants to use it. Beyond that, the only other parts of this to really mention are everything that he claims about using it for propulsion, like if you bombard it with protons that it makes antimatter, which makes no sense, because he claimed that you have to input material to get antimatter, which produces energy when it reacts with matter. Simple conservation of mass and energy means that you get absolutely nothing out of this. You spend a proton, you get an antiproton, you react with a proton, you get energy exactly equal to the mass energy of the particles that went into it. Everything is conserved. You get nothing out of it. 
That's why the antimatter reactors on Starship Enterprise kind of also don't make sense, because to generate antimatter in order to collide it with matter to get energy, you have to spend the same amount of energy to get the antimatter, assuming a 100% conversion, which you almost never get. Uh, granted, antimatter reactors were only a backup on the Starship Enterprise, but that's beside the point. There's also the claim that Bob Lazar made that element 115 has a gravitational field that extends beyond its electron shell, and that gravitational field can be harnessed uniquely from element 115. The problem with this is that everything has a gravitational pull on everything else, so this claim is either kind of obvious or just kind of silly at the same time. But that's one interpretation of this claim. According to other statements that Bob Lazar has made, the gravity A wave, which is what is supposed to extend beyond the outer electron shell of the atom, is the strong nuclear force. This is one of the four fundamental forces in nature, but the last 60 years of physics have taught us that the strong nuclear force is incredibly strong only within the atom. Its strength drops off incredibly quickly, and it does not extend outside of the atomic nucleus, much less to the electron shell beyond it. For Bob Lazar to be right, pretty much all of modern atomic physics, including some very basic observational things, would need to be wrong. Looking over this episode after I wrote it, and after recording it to this point, it admittedly kind of seems almost silly that I'd be covering it, and it's almost like a mini-rant on my part. Why ever should I devote an entire episode to the claims made by one person who seems to have no credibility whatsoever, not only in his background, but also in the claims themselves? The answer is precisely because of this absolute lack of any credibility and the outright refutation of his claims, and yet the position that he holds within ufology and the absolute fervor with which his followers will cling to any shred of possible corroboration of his story including George Knapp to a certain extent. Mr. Knapp has continued to support Bob Lazar in at least some part of his story, and it's because of Knapp that other people believe Bob. I have literally had people tell me in interviews when I've been discussing this very thing that they also didn't put any credibility into Bob Lazar's story until they saw George Knapp support it. And because they trust Knapp, they have to believe at least some part of what Bob Lazar says is true. It, it, it baffles me, but, you know, I'm, I'm often baffled because I'm a scientist. Spin the wheel, this time I'm baffled. Next time, maybe I'll be astounded. As recently as five and a half years ago, in November of 2009, according to my extensive archives of Coast to Coast AM, George Knapp had on Bob Lazar, Gene Huff, and John Lear to discuss Bob Lazar's story, among various other things. And so, with all of this investment that people have in the story, it's perhaps not surprising that they'll cling to any shred of evidence, however feeble, that still gives them hope, such as the discovery of Ununpentium. The fact that Ununpentium exists and is a for-reals element, even if it wasn't first synthesized until 14 years after Bob Lazar's story came out, does not mean that his story is true. And yet, when it was announced in 2003, as I said, you can find online forums where people pointed to it as vindication of Bob Lazar's story. I think a Reddit user put it very well. Quote, I hate to say it, but someone with a rudimentary understanding of physics could predict the existence of element 115. 
However, as others have pointed out, Lazar claimed that 115 would be the threshold of atomic stability and could be used for practical applications, such as the manufacture of spacecraft. Not the case with the real element 115. Look, I'd love to believe Lazar, but he's been thoroughly debunked at this point. End quote. And that's really the way things are. Nothing about his story checks out, other than the junior college he attended. Nothing he said about Onimpendium checks out, other than it exists, but even embedded within the validation of Onimpendium's existence is a refutation of Bob Lazar's story. He said that it couldn't be manufactured. And so we're left with a perhaps fun story and nothing else, but some lessons that we can carry over to other fields. For example, I don't have to tell you that because Spider-Man takes place in New York City and New York City is real, that doesn't mean Spider-Man is real. I don't have to tell you that because scientists are working on ways to make things invisible, maybe with a fabric, that doesn't mean that Harry Potter is real. But I do have to tell some people that because Zachariah Sitchin used some Sumerian names, that does not mean that anything Sitchin claimed is real. And, as with this episode, I have to remind some people that all because someone makes a prediction and some tiny sliver of that prediction later is validated, that does not mean that everything they claimed is true. For logical fallacies in this episode, there are two that are likely of importance. The first is a quick appeal to authority, or argument from authority. Because George Knapp believes Bob Lazar, and George Knapp is trustworthy, we should believe Bob Lazar. I covered this fallacy a lot more in episode 128, so I'm not really going to go into detail as to why it's faulty logic. If you have questions, let me know. It, it should be kind of obvious. The second fallacy, well... I'm going to hopefully leave it to next episode's feedback. I'm not sure what fallacy to really pin this on, the idea that because one thing someone said is right, their entire body of work is right. Perhaps it's a form of guilt by association, though in this case it would be a correct by association. Maybe it's a form of special pleading? This is a case where I'm not sure, and I'd actually prefer some help in tracking this one down rather than say something that's completely and utterly wrong. The only announcement from this episode is to reiterate what I said last time, that we are entering that time of the year when I get crazy busy. I expect to still put out two podcast episodes per month. In fact, I already recorded the first one for July, although I haven't recorded the second one for June, but the episode release dates may not be exactly on the 1st and the 16th of the month, well, because of my crazy schedule. With that said, don't forget that you can find me online at podcast.sjrdesign.net, on Facebook under Exposing Pseudoastronomy, me personally on Twitter as Dr. Dr. Astro or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudoastro. And for those who don't listen to the wrap-up music stuff, I am also now finally on Stitcher. I think I've been added to 22 people's playlists, and I'm ranked in the 5,000s for popularity. That wraps up this topic for the 133rd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. 
I do hope that you listened and enjoyed it, and... Okay, there's a deer outside. Sorry. Uh, I do thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page of the podcast, tweet me, and various other things. I do read every message, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, tell family, tell two random people you'll never meet in real life. Maybe at a Pluto Palooza event as New Horizons gets to Pluto on July 14th.